bravery is there in the way they play. And what about Peter O'Mahony? I just oh, thought a sensational performance. Yeah. Jack O'Donoghue and Hodnett, the three of them in the back row. The Red 78 with Alan Quinlan and Neil Briggs. Subscribe to the Rugby Channel on the OTB Sports app and turn on your notifications now. Meaningful metrics on Off The Ball. In partnership with Whoop, the personalised digital fitness and health coach that helps you unlock your inner potential. See whoop.com for more. Yes, it is that time on a Thursday when we make you a little bit smarter on meaningful metrics in partnership with Whoop, the personalised digital fitness and health coach that helps you unlock your inner potential. See whoop.com for more. Shane Hannan is with us this evening. Good evening, Shane. Good evening, Nathan. How are things? Did you make us smarter when it came to your meaningful metrics around the World Snooker Championship? <laughs> no, you went with Neil I, Robertson. You were miles thanks, off. Thanks for bringing. You were ageist. You were ageist. That's where you went wrong. I should have just. I should have just gone with the obvious. Ronnie O'Sullivan. Just yeah. always pick Ronnie O'Sullivan. The most meaningful they, metric of all in snooker turns out is genius. Well, listen, and uh, who who would rule him out doing it another uh, one or two times before he uh, before he retires at the age of seventy three? So we're going to switch our attention to another of your loves, Formula One. Uh, this weekend, we have the Miami Grand Prix, uh, which should be fascinating and a nice time as well, I think, for everybody to tune into. Uh, so we're going to go through some of the metrics around Formula One and how it's changed uh, throughout the years and throughout the decades. Uh, obviously, this year has been a year of substantial change in terms of what they've done with the cars. Uh, average lap times, because... As I got, like a lot of people, more and more back into F1, I'm looking back at old footage and like everything would suggest lap times should get substantially quicker. But obviously, there are far more safety regulations in place now. How have lap times changed over the years? Yeah, it, it's interesting, Nathan. Like, it's quite dramatic, uh, the, the changes over the years. When you look at the, the data, there's a great uh, chart people can find online as well. This group called Driver61 made this chart where they broke down the fastest lap times from every race of every season to date. There's a lot of data there, as you can imagine. Um, but it, it's interesting because if you look back even, current Formula 4 cars match the speed of early 1970s F1 cars. F3 cars today are as fast as 1980s F1 cars. And if you remember watching Formula 1 in the in the early early to mid 90s, that's how fast current Formula 2 cars can go. So it shows how uh, how much different the speeds of the cars have changed, but they certainly have gone up and down. Like the biggest change probably came in in the 50s. Uh, cars then changed to this mid-engine layout. Then the late 60s, engineers started to get creative with uh, looking after things like handling uh, for the cars. And then the early 70s, the, the science behind aerodynamics kind of seemed to take off. Uh, and, the, and that kind of reduced lap times, Nathan, by 10, 11, 12 seconds, respectively. And then, there, of course, there's other eras as well. So the 2000s, you have things like the, the V6 hybrid engine in, uh, unit in 2014. And since then, 2014, lap times increasingly quicker until this year, Nathan, where the focus seems to be placed more on, on competitive racing than outright speed. So it's certainly something that's changed dramatically. So in terms of the fastest ever speed attained by a Formula One car, did, is that data available? Yeah, 100%. Like there, there, There's loads of uh, information out there. And it's, it's, it's interesting because 
if you look at qualifying times, uh, the fastest qualifying lap in Formula One ever, recorded by Lewis Hamilton, 2020 Italian Grand Prix, like Monza is called the, the Cathedral of Speed for, for a very good reason. So we completed this this pole lap at an average speed of, two. this is an average speed now, 264.363 kilometers per hour. Uh, but the fastest speed ever attained by, by a Formula One car, that's where it differs. So Valtteri Bottas on the Baku City Circuit's main straight in 2016, achieved 378 kilometers per hour. Uh, the speed trap as well is the fastest speed was by uh, Valtteri Bottas in the Mexican Grand Prix in 2016. But the fastest speed ever achieved, Nathan, by a Formula One car is 397.360 kilometers per hour. That was the, the Honda Formula One team back in 2006 in a modified version of their 2005 car on the Bonneville Sod Flats in the USA. So not during a race, okay. but really to just break that record. Wow. So pretty fast. It's 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 not bad. It's got to be said. I presume it depends. Uh, you mentioned Monza being the cathedral of speed. Uh, that like somewhere like Monaco, the the average speed is way way down. Yeah, this is the thing. And like, doesn't mean it's it's less interesting a race. I guess we all love Monaco for for nostalgia reasons. But but if you're going to a race for competitiveness, it's probably not the race you go to. Uh, qualifying in, in Monaco and Baku and these street circuits is fascinating because you see the cars going around these, these street circuits as fast as humanly possible. But then in the race, overtaking is quite difficult. But yeah, 100%. The fastest street uh, street track on the circuit at the minute tends to be Baku in Azerbaijan. As I said, the fastest pole lap there set by Valtteri Bottas in 2019. Uh, and then Monaco. I mean, Lewis Hamilton has set the fastest ever qualifying lap in Monte Carlo. That's relatively pedestrian sounding, 171 kilometers per hour. But uh, absolutely, the street circuits, great for qualifying, maybe not so good for the race itself in terms of overtaking. Another area that's changed quite dramatically over the past couple of decades are the pit stops and the speed of the pit stops and what's required at a pit stop in terms of uh, refueling or no refueling and just changing the tyres. Like the speed that they are expected to change on the pit stops now is quite insane. Like, yeah, like you see that the the opening sequence of, of Drive to Survive on Netflix and you, every episode has a different uh, area view of someone doing the, the, the pitch change and the tire change. Uh, and you see how fast it goes. I mean, it's it's quite remarkable. But when you look back even at the early years, and I was doing some, some digging into this, and it's quite fascinating to read the early years of pit stops because the first Formula One championship was 1950. And at that time, pit stops were upwards of a minute. So you had only two mechanics servicing the cars you had hammers being used to remove wheel nuts uh directly ad- adjacent to the track so your these pit lane crew workers were right beside the cars going upwards of 180 miles per hour beside them there was no safety um and then when the, the pit stop itself was complete the mechanics needed to push the car for a couple of y- yards to get it going again um and then like like i mean if you did it in 25 30 seconds in the 50s that was that was considered very very fast and slick um, but the, it really became a while before pit stops were kind of used strategically. Like the 57 German Grand Prix, the great Juan Manuel, Juan Manuel Fangio was the first driver to intentionally pit for fuel uh, and tires in the middle of a race. He eventually won the race, but a lot of people said he probably could have gone on without without pit stopping. So it, it wasn't really used as a, as a tactical maneuver for, for a long, long time. They're probably at a peak right now. Like There's no way they can get any faster than this unless they somehow manage to automate it. Yeah, like, yeah, I, I've often wondered how, how could they possibly make pit stops faster? But like, if you're looking at it now, you're, you're, you're talking two or, two or three seconds now for the tyres. Pit stops right now in the modern Formula One are all about the tyres, uh, the, sorry, the tyres. The and since 2010, we've probably seen pit stop times gradually go down, although 
we're deep into the area of diminishing returns now. Red Bull have the, the record for the fastest ever pit stop, 1.82 seconds at the 2019 Brazilian Grand Prix. And since then, the, the average pit stop time has kind of remained largely the same. The really limiting factor here, Nathan, is the human brain. So during a pit stop, and you mentioned automation, this is where it comes, becomes interesting. During the pit stop, each wheel gunner has to signal that every tire has been securely attached. So all four gunners, once they've given the signal, the jack men lower the car, the driver then gets the signal to exit the pit box. Uh, and some pe- teams suspect, uh, and the FIA, FIA suspect as well, that Red Bull, they got that fast time because they've been using these automated devices that remove this human element. So a wheel gun that maybe automatically sends a positive signal when it, when a lug nut is tightened, but this could lead to, to malfunctions. It, it gets a faster pit stop time marginally, but, but more risk. ultimately drivers could end up leaving the pits before the before the nuts are on. So uh, the jury is out as to as to really how low it can go, but uh, it's fascinating. Uh, overtaking. So one of the biggest criticisms and the most consistent criticism of Formula One is that it became boring. Uh, that you know, there wasn't as much drama, there wasn't as much overtaking. It was the fastest car, went off in front, top qualifying, started on pole and was never caught. Uh, in terms of overtaking, dry, wet weather, how much of an impact does that make? Definitely has a, has an impact. And like, yeah, like if you think back to the days of even Schumacher in the 90s, there probably wasn't as much overtaking. We had the, the DRS, the drag reduction system introduced in, in 2011. That led to record levels of overtaking. You had the most overtakes of any Grand Prix in history, the fourth race of that season when it was brought in. And some people think it maybe makes it too easy for overtaking. Uh, these new rules in, in 2022 that brought in make it kind of easier again to follow, for cars That's to follow each other. That's certainly the criticism this time around. And I'm sort of undivided from watching the first few races, particularly with the different battles we've seen with Leclerc and Verstappen, where mm. you could predict what was happening for three, four laps where Verstappen would go past, but Leclerc could just wait and for his moment and go past again. Now, I guess it does add the element of danger and risk that every time you go past, there's the option that somebody tries to cut you off. But it's it's more overtaking, but it's more predictable overtaking, if that makes sense. Yeah. 100%. As you said, you can kind of you can kind of tailor it to to predict every three or four laps how how it's going to look the, uh, unless someone ha- has a has an incident or a crash, but it's obviously these new rules have kind of reduced the amount of turbulent air or dirty air as the commentators call it behind cars, but it, yeah, it's it's maybe not quite as exciting, but if you look at the dry and and the wet as you mentioned, um unofficially in a, terms of a dry race, the 2016 Chinese Grand Prix saw the most overtakes of any dry race ever. 161 passes for position. Nico Rosberg uh, took the checkered flag for Mercedes that uh, that year. He went on to win the World Championship. Um, but several of the fastest cars ended up towards the back of the grid for that one. So Lewis Hamilton started at the rear. Kimi Räikkönen forced a pit early. You had uh, Sebastian Vettel down the order as well. Daniel Ricciardo with a puncture. So when you have some of the bigger drivers in better cars... Uh, having incidents that force them to the back, that obviously leads to more overtaking because there's going to be some of those bigger cars overtaking some of the the smaller uh, teams. The wet then, um, 147 overtakes at the 2012 season finale, the Brazilian Grand Prix, uh, the most ever at any rain-affected race. So, I mean, you want to see wet races and you want to see lots of overtaking at these wet races. But um, yeah, it, it's, it certainly impacts it, the wet and the dry, but those Has there ever been a race with no overtaking? Yeah, this is like uh, when I was doing my research for this, Nathan. I was thinking that nah, there couldn't possibly have been a Formula One race where there was no 
overtaking, but it has happened. So you had no overtaking at three races in Formula One history. 2003 Monaco, 2005 US Grand Prix, and the 2009 European Grand Prix. So there have only been three races, as I said, no overtakes whatsoever. All kind of came in a six-year period. So that Monaco one was 03, the European Grand Prix in Valencia 09, and in the middle, the, the Grand Prix at Indianapolis in 2005. But that that Indianapolis one, you can kind of take with a pinch of salt. There was only six cars that contested the race. There was a, an argument over, a political, political fallout over the tyres, Michelin tyre failures in practice, and then the teams running Bridgestone tyres uh, didn't want to race against those those dangerous tyres as they saw it. So there's only six teams. Um, Russian Grand Prix came close in 2017. Valtteri Bottas won the first Formula One race of his career and just one overtake on that 52-lap event. So, yeah, remarkably, three races have had no overtakes. And in terms of the spread of Grand Prix winners over the course of the season, again, another criticism that was levelled, particularly as Lewis Hamilton became more dominant, as you knew when you turned up that if Lewis Hamilton was on pole, Lewis Hamilton was going to win the race. Uh, The number of drivers to win across the season, how's that changed over the years? Has it become more or less competitive? It, like it's kind of right now in the in the very middle of 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 where the level has been before, right? Probably on an average uh, scale. So you've had a low of three uh, winners of a race in a season, and you've had had a high of eleven no, uh, drivers who've won, which is quite remarkable as well. Nineteen eighty two, eleven unique winners over the course of the season. This kind of peak was after a steady rise. It's consistent in the sharp increase in the number of of races per season. So granted, you're going to have more races more chances for more winners. And then the drop-off after 82, interestingly, Nathan, was was quite significant. You had a few years with eight winners with the high points since 1982, including 2012. And then recent years, as you mentioned, very, very low uh, as a factor of, of Mercedes dominance. But last year, quite interesting, we had 22 races uh, and six winners. So Verstappen won 10 of the 22 races uh, last season. Hamilton won eight. And then one win each for Valtteri Bottas, Checo Perez, Daniel Ricciardo and Esteban Ocon. Which makes it interesting. You, you kind of have drivers going into a season thinking they could maybe sneak a win, certainly sneak a podium. Like we've seen the, the four races of this season so far, and there'll be one extra race this year, Nathan. So 23 instead of last season's 22. We have Leclerc winning two, Verstappen winning two. You get the feeling it's going to kind of stay like that all season. I'd be surprised if Verstappen didn't win this weekend in Miami with the straights that are there and the speed that car has on the straights. So I fear that it's going to be you know, maybe a two-horse race again without Hamilton being there, Leclerc taking his place. Do you but, see uh, anything, and have you read anything or much suggestion that Mercedes can somehow find the speed and can get Hamilton back into a title race? Or even I, anyways I, competitive? At the minute, uh, George Russell looks more likely in the Mercedes car to be competitive, which is fascinating given what Lewis Hamilton has done in his career. Like He's in the same car as George Russell, and uh, Hamilton has had some terrible days at the office in the four races so far. Whereas Russell has been broadly consistent. He has a few th- uh, third place finishes, fourth place finishes. He's been there or thereabouts at the edge of the podium in every race so far. So I don't know where they're going to find it for Hamilton. Maybe it's something personal with Hamilton going on that he's just not quite in the headspace as he was last year involved in a title fight. Maybe he's given up. He realizes the car just isn't there, doesn't have the speed to, to compete with Ferrari this year or Verstappen as well. So. I feel like Russell maybe is the man to watch in the Mercedes car this year, but significantly, I still think they won't be in a title race. All right, Shane, thank you very much. We look forward to the Miami Grand Prix this weekend. Shane Hannon back with Meaningful Metrics 
on Off The Ball in partnership with Whoop, the personalised digital fitness and health coach that helps you unlock your inner potential. See whoop.com for more details. And with thanks to Whoop, we have an amazing prize to give away this week for your chance to win the all-new Whoop 4.0, including a 12-month membership. Just check out our competition on our social channels and tell us who the mystery Whoop ambassador is. Meaningful Metrics on Off The Ball. In partnership with Whoop, the personalised digital fitness and health coach that helps you unlock your inner potential. See whoop.com for more.